Welcome to On the Middle East, Al Monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and once again, I'll be looking at the watershed elections in Turkey that are due to be held on May 14th. Recent opinion polls suggest the race will be very tight. Some predict that Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party may be edged out of power after more than two decades at the helm. The stakes are high and every single vote counts. Kurdish votes count more than any, as witnessed during the 2019 mayoral polls, which saw Erdogan's men pushed out by the opposition in Ankara and Istanbul. The pro-Kurdish HDP bloc looks set once again to side with the opposition, leaving Erdogan scrambling for the support of pious Kurds. In a highly controversial move, he's reached out to the Islamist Hudapar party, which sprang from Hezbollah, a violent Islamist Kurdish group that clashed with secular Kurds throughout the 1990s, with the backing of the Turkish state. With us here today to talk about Hezbollah and its latter-day incarnation is Mashuk Kurt, an assistant professor of sociology at the Royal Holloway University's Department of Law and Criminology. Mashuk is also the author of a widely acclaimed book on Hezbollah. The group has no connection to its namesake in Lebanon. Welcome to our program, Mashuk. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So you're a great expert on the Kurdish movement Hezbollah, which is uh, very different to its Lebanese namesake. Mashuk, can you kick off by just giving us a, a general sense of what Hezbollah is? Who are these people? Yes, of course. So Hezbollah movement in Turkey is different from the Lebanese counterpart, which is excessively a Shi'i organization, whereas Hezbollah in Turkey is a Sunni organization with a Kurdish majority, ethnically Kurdish people, basically. It has been established in late 1970s, early 1980s, by its founder who studied political science at uh, Ankara University Political Science Department, as known as Mülkiye, by Hüseyin Veliolu, and uh, two other imams and two engineers. So in the 1980s, basically, this is the post-Iran Islamic Revolution environment and Hezbollah movement basically split from the national vision movement in a way, because when we look at the formation of the leaders of Hezbollah, we see that they all studied or stayed with the um, the Milituk Talebi, the National Student Union Organization, as well as some other Islamist organizations of uh, their Turkish counterparts. So their motivation at the beginning was to establish a Sharia-based regime in the country, and they had a more kind of like a universal uh, view on Islamic fraternity. Although from the beginning, their constituencies or their support base was consisted of uh, the Kurdish citizens in Turkey. So in the 1980s, basically first they 
uh, relied on family and tribal ties, as well as Imam Hatib students in this religious uh, high schools and some Islamist Imams in the region, although most of them departed after the conflict started between Hezbollah and other organizations. And in the 1980s, they also moved to the Arbakur city center and they expanded there. I just want to remind our audience of who the National View is, and that's the movement that was founded by the late Nejmetin Arbakan, we can say Turkey's first sort of Islamist party that was very Sunni and nationalist, Turkish nationalist at its core. And you're saying that Hezbollah sort of had some contact with them, but then diverged. I just want to make sure that our audience understands the context. Yes. So basically, the National Vision Movement, Milli Görüş Hareketi, is, has been an incubation ground for the Islamist political movements in Turkey, uh, have established a number of, number of political parties, succeeded one by another after the ban of these political parties. Eventually, the main splits happened after the 28th February military mem memorandum that overthrew the coalition government. As a result, the welfare party split into two, one of which is the current Islamist government of Turkey, Justice and Development Party, and the other one, the, the former one, basically is represented by two political parties at the moment. But their influence on the Islamist political thoughts in Turkey is quite foundational. And many people somehow had connection with this political party, including the leadership of Hezbollah. So going back to Diyarbakir. Yeah, so... Basically, in the early 1990s, the tension, the contentious politics and the aggressive recruitment of the Hezbollah uh, led to this conflictual relationship with their former allies. So they started eliminating other smaller Kurdish Islamist organizations and kind of created a monopoly over, uh, over this field. This is also a period where the tension between the secular Kurdish movement, the PKK, and Hezbollah bases and supporters started. In 1991, the PKK has executed the parents of one Hezbollah member in Idil district of Shirnak. Uh, it meant to be the Hezbollah member himself, but he was not home. And this led to the beginning of a very dark, violent period where also the state authorities, especially the military intelligence, JITEM, and other organizations started infiltrating Hezbollah and encouraging, supporting them for the execution of Kurdish activists and civilians. As a result, between 1991 and 1996, over 700 civilians uh, from the supporting base of the PKK, but also from the Hezbollah side, have been uh, have lost their lives, and fo this followed by basically kind of an execution of Hezbollah members on the ground of their involvement with the intelligence and stuff. So in 2000s, there was a turning point because uh, there was this uh, security operation the house raid on uh, a villa in Istanbul Beykoz district where the Hezbollah leadership and the Hezbollah archive was seized 
I mean, the leader was killed and the archive was, was seized. And this led to um, massive security operations across the Kurdish region and across the country, especially in cities like Konya. Uh, over 10,000 members of Hezbollah have been detained and arrested. Some of them have been involved in conflict and violence, executing other people, working as a trigger man. Uh, and also there were thousands of people who were just involved in non-violent aspect of Hezbollah activities. Uh, for example, teaching Quran in the mosques and stuff. And also these people have been in prison. So there was this silent period between 2000 and 2004, and then Hezbollah reappeared in the public space in the form of a civil society organizations um, soon after the Islamist government of Turkey, the current Islamist government of Turkey, came to power. So uh, basically, as you pointed out, um, Hezbollah started off as a sort of organic, you know, um, organization that was later sort of taken over, used by the deep state, and once it had fulfilled its mission, was discarded, shut down. Is that what you're saying? And then with the emergence of the AKP, they found a, a more friendly environment in which they could uh, make, you know, reappear again. Is that basically what you're saying? Yes, more or less, this is the case. I mean, they basically emerged as a conservative uh, Kurdish Islamist organization with more emphasis on their Islamist ideology than their uh, ethnic identity. Um, obviously, 1990s is also a period when there was this dirty war between the states and the Kurdish insurgency. So the emergence of Hezbollah in this period obviously uh, created an opportunity on the state size to infiltrate into the group and manipulate them or providing them with impunity and kind of like, you know, creating or manipulating this uh, fratricide between the Kurdish people uh, so that they can basically deal with the urban unrest uh, and support for the PKK. But when uh, they oh, reappeared in the, you know, 2004, as you said, they, they sort of um, appeared with a brand new face, didn't they? Can you tell us a little bit about the rebranding of Hezbollah and how real is it? I mean, yes, they reappeared in public space with a new discourse. Obviously, their principles, their ideals, as they also state, have not changed significantly. What has changed is the implementations of these ideals or the search for these are, are, are ideals. So their methods have changed. Previously, they were more secretive, uh, clandestine, underground. And they relied on a very core base quite loyal and ready to get involved in violence to some extent whereas this has proven to be ineffective so when they emerged in the public space also there was this available environment as a part of this uh, liberal islamist opening under the akp and also as a part of the eu negotiation process 
the civil society organizations and the opening of the civil society organizations were very much encouraged. So, but obviously it is important to distinguish between Hezbollah and the legal movements that they succeeded in. There is, there is apparently a connection between the social basis of these two organizations. So the supporting base of Hezbollah kind of subsequently started supporting and voting for Hudapar, for example. But this is a case, as I would say, also for the mainstream Kurdish uh, political movement as well, where there is an armed part and there is also the legal part. So you're referring when... to the HDP and mm -hmm. the PKK. Yeah, so I like, you know, kind of like uh, equating the the legal organizations of Hudapar and Mustazaflar and these organizations with Hezbollah, with an armed organization, is a reductionist approach. We mm -hmm. need more nuance to, to kind of uh, contextualize how their motivations changed or remained the same and uh, what is... So what do they want? What does this uh, civilian sort of organization state as its goal? You said they remained unchanged. But my understanding is that, more, you know, in recent years, they seem to have embraced Kurdish nationalism uh, much more sort of pronouncedly than they yeah. had in the 80s as Hezbollah. I mean, I think the main issue, the main difference is the accountability. When you kind of uh, come up with civil society organizations and a political far party, you cannot just rely on this abstract uh, universal ideals, but you need to provide some tangible solutions or create some tangible discourses that you can engage with the local population, your supporting base. So after they legalize their activity activities, uh, this was the significant change. Um, what they want as a legal entity is, I mean, definitely they have like this conservative uh, view on, on how the social political life needs to be organized. And uh, their view is very much static. It, it is not like really kind of engaging with the, re the fact that society is not something that remain the same whereas their notion of Kurdishness is for for example is rooted in this conservative ideals of Islam the family the tradition and whatever kind of diverse from this vision is seen as something corrupt or heretic Kurdish heretic I would say yes um so obviously, it's like um, in 2006, when there was this Denmark... Um, what the is cartoons, the, the Prophet cartoon Muhammad cartoons. Yeah, the cartoon controversy in Denmark led to this protest in Diyarbakir, where about a million people attended the protest. And this was kind of one of the first big public show of the Mustazaflar Association, the Association for the Oppressed. And after that, they started organizing this public events where not only Hezbollah members or supporters attended, but like the broader conservative religious practicing Muslims from the region also started attending the blessed birth, birth event to celebrate uh, Prophet Muhammad's birthday every year, every April. 
Um, this kind of gave them a public visibility and they started diversifying their activities, opening uh, newspapers, magazines in Turkish and Kurdish, uh, their madrasas, um, hundreds of different civil society organizations under different names. But their main organization basically were prosecuted in 2008 and eventually banned, uh, closed down by the Supreme Court. Um, and at this stage, basically, the, the movement has decided to accelerate their process of opening a political party. And that's how they established Hudapar, the Free Cause Party, or it is kind of a pun word. Huda <laughs> in Kurdish means God, in Persian as well. So Khudapar is the party of God, which kind of translates as Hezbollah in Arabic. Um, but so yeah, it's a it's play a... on words. But just to, to to clarify, you said uh, the the organization was banned. Which which one are you talking about? Uh, Mustazaflar Association. Oh, the the association which was linked to Hezbollah uh -huh. was banned by the courts on the grounds yeah, that yeah. it was somehow. Engaged in um, terrorist activity of some kind. I think some of their members were charged uh, with Hezbollah charges. Okay, and so okay. this accelerated the process of establishing this party, uh, uh, whose base obviously is very attractive to Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Yeah, it seems like it. it and was so not now we have Erdogan uh, in talks with Hudapar, and hoping mm -hmm. to add Hudapar to his electoral alliance, right, as he goes into the elections. Because, you know, we there's this cliche out there now that, you know, the Kurds are the kingmakers. They hold the key to electoral victory in Turkey. And obviously the Kurds are not a monolith. And uh, while you have a significant number, some 13% maybe, who vote for HDP, the secular uh, Kurdish movement, mm, yeah. then you have these more religious Kurds who uh, would actually vote for the AKP for a long time. But now that's in question, right? Um, first of all, they don't like what the AKP has been doing uh, to the Kurds in Syria, this sort of much more militarist approach. Um, and the alliance with Bahçeli obviously doesn't go down well. So how does Erdogan square this circle? How does he bring Hudapar to his side? And and what 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 is the significance of this, in fact? And isn't it kind of scary, to be honest, knowing these people's past? And also, if you could talk a little bit about the events of 2015 and Yasin Buru and all the, you know, the sort of seeming revival of the violence between uh, Hezbollah supporters and the PKK in Diyarbakir? Yes, I mean, important questions. Well, like, first of all, we need to acknowledge that Hudapar is a legitimate political party established based on the laws uh, overruling Turkey, most of the time when Erdogan allows, obviously. Uh, so their establishment, I mean, Erdogan now sees much opportunity in them, obviously. 
Yet, when they were established, they were not that significant to Erdogan because yeah. at the time he was maintaining conversations with the mainstream Kurdish political movement um, as a part of the peace process, right? And then there comes the Syrian war. And in 2014, um, in October, when ISIS surrenders this little Kurdish town, uh, Kobani, on the Turkish border, so we all remember that there was this Kurdish riots, as known as Kobani protest. And this is... And that's definitely... because Erdogan seemed to want ISIS to capture uh, Kobani, right? And that, of course, provoked huge anger uh, among Turkish Kurds. Yes, I mean, it was basically for the Kurdish people, it was a big disappointment to see just on the southern side of the border that their co-nation, uh, the Kurdish people, most of whom had uh, familial and kinship ties with, with the people living in Turkey, are suffering under ISIS, whereas Turkey is just doing nothing. And this inaction definitely triggered a lot of anger. So the Kurdish protesters started basically uh, blocking the roads, uh, between cities to the neighborhoods and even international roads such as the Silk Road that uh, goes to the Iraqi Kurdistan, right? Um, so during this period, obviously, there was also this collective memory of Hezbollah from the 1990s that uh, resulted in this tragic event. So some of the protesters basically surrendered to this uh, pro-Hezbollah civil society organizations, and they found uh, a number of young men who were distributing the uh, the meat because it was also the Eid, the Eid al-Adha. Uh, among so they them, surrounded they, that association, you're saying? Yeah, they attacked the association. Uh -huh, uh -huh. They brutally murdered a number of Hezbollah members. And this was a turning point because until that point, we need to acknowledge that Hudapar community really uh, was careful not to engage with any conflict. Of course, they did not confront their past, uh, yet they were careful to just like use legal nonviolent means, although sometimes their pressure, especially stemming from their conservative worldview, uh, was too much on secular activities, organizations, and individuals in the region. But the murder of Yasin Buru and his friends basically put an end to this kind of friendly live rivalry between these two movements. And as a result, the Hezbollah members, some of the Hezbollah members known as Sheikh Said Teriyelleri uh, and Hüseyin'in Fedaileri, uh, so two battalions, I would say, appeared in the public square of Diyarbakir and Batman, and they also executed a number of Kurds, Kurdish protesters. Uh, the situation did not escalate further, but definitely the murder of Yasin Buru marked um, a new beginning, a new rivalry and enmity, uh, at least revived a new enmity between these two organizations. But, but, and, but I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but... Um... It's interesting, though, that these two battalions just popped up so quickly. So clearly, even as they uh, 
avoided uh, conflict, they were clearly prepared for it. Yes, but I mean, we need to also kind of remember that this is a period when, when where almost everyone is somehow armed. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, uh, just a year after that, we will see the armed conflict, the Yede Gehash, the, the revolutionary youth wing of the PKK, yeah. We will see also people feeling increasingly insecure in the region and obtaining some arms because just on the southern border, there is, there is ISIS. Right. So, so I wouldn't be surprised that there, there are some people armed and... Like you know, appeared on the streets on this ground, but, but Erdogan that... used that event, though, didn't he? Of the course. murder of these uh, Hezbollah youths and the name Yasin Buru has become, you know, yeah, emblematic. Yeah. Uh, and Over he keeps using people... that, doesn't he? Over fifty people lost their lives, among whom there were four or five uh, people from the from the Hudapar community, right? We don't remember the name name of those people who were executed by the security forces. No. But definitely the name of Yasin Buru has been and living and utilized by the government to kind of further uh, deepen this divide between the Kurds. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously it was also served as a ground to criminalize or further criminalize the the legal political party, HDP, uh, whose former leader is still in prison, uh, mostly based on accusations stemming from this period, the Kobani protests, right? So definitely Kobani uh, holds something much bigger than uh, its physical space. It is a turning point in the Kurdish politics because it is when also the state apparently has decided to end the, the peace negotiation process and kind of open the ground for this more criminal-leaning organizations, their support in Syria with al-Nusra and all that, you know. Yeah, but um, coming back to what Hezbollah, or rather Hudapar, wants and mm -hmm. But in particularly with regard to Kurdish and nationalist aspirations, I mean, they do want some kind of federal status, isn't that right, for the Kurds? And how, how do you bring together a group that's demanding that with someone like Devlet Bahçeli, the leader of the Nationalist Movement Party, who is the, at the exact opposite, opposite end of that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, it, it is not surprising. It's a very old strategy of the Turks from the Ottomans. It's like, you know, when someone is not that powerful, they will just utilize them, use them, and when they gain some power and stuff. I mean, I'm not I'm not suggesting that Hudapar is merely just a tool. They have their own agency. They have their own ideals and ideas, and definitely they see this as an opportunity to kind of widen their support and like you know if they have two three members in the parliament and if they have their emblem in the turkish national assembly as a part of this it will be a, a significant gain for them to just uh, reach out to more people and obviously 
when we think of the state as a legitimate le legitimacy given authority, obviously this will just like you know seal the process of of uh, legitimizing the movement. So it's a very uh, pragmatic move on their part. Um, and their base will understand that and uh, go along with it, presumably. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think that um, the uh, the nationalist movement party and the Let Bahçeli have a particular like for Tudapash. Yet they also want to win in this election. And... If we remember in the past one, for example, Devlet Bahçeli even suggested that Abdullah Öcalan uh, send a letter and the political party should abide by that or something like that. You know, it's, it is something unbelievable that Devlet Bahçeli would say, but he did it. So like in the real political sphere, I think these things are understandable. Um and obviously, Hudapar has negotiations with the governments, not with the, not with the Mehepe. Not with Bacheli. And how much yeah. actual support does Hudapar command in Turkey? It is not a big support. So what we know from a number of election results, they have about like 200,000 votes, give or take. Uh, five ten percent of this um so but obviously when we look at the local level then it means this means a lot especially like in cities like Diyarbakir, Ahmed their support is like around 40,000 35,000 votes probably in this election many people will also depart from AKP but they will not vote for HDP so he, the, then Hudapar becomes a viable option for the conservative mostly elderly Kurdish people from region and AKP does not want to uh, give that image like they would happily give one or two seats to Hudapar but still they will have this votes in their own poll, right? Um, this is one thing. And the second is obviously uh, the mobilizing power of Hudapar, especially if they are given some significant um, positions. Like, let's say, their members, Zekeriya Yapujol or someone else, are listed as the second or third person in the AKP list then these people will work harder than the AKP members who almost like, you know, disappeared from the region after years of violence and discrimination and increasing nationalism. So Hudapar members basically will be able to reach out and talk to people much more than the AKP members in the region. And Erdogan wants to use this as an opportunity. Um, well, um, but I mean... I understand the politics, but again, getting back to the risk factor, um, mm -hmm. is there any, I mean, danger of, you know, Hudapar, a repeat, let's say, of the Kobani incidents, especially in a scenario where the result of that election is contested? Yes. Um, well, unfortunately, this is a possibility. And when these things emerge, uh, 
the AKP does not shy away from utilizing and using them. We have seen in previous elections some very shady executions of members of HDP or Hudapash during the election period. So that was a clear motive in 2015 when Hamdullah Oeh or from the Hudapar side, a number of other people were executed in the city of Bingöl or in Diyarbakir in, and, and in several other places where there was conflict and kidnapping and stuff. Um, and when these things happen, definitely like, you know, it will give an opportunity to the state authorities to further criminalize the HDP and kind of create this image to connect them to terrorism and open more space and ground for Hudapar. Um, I think Hudapar will not jump into such a possibility. Yet, if something dramatic happens, then uh, I cannot really rule it out. People will just, yeah. Um. Finally, of course, um... I mean, what's interesting is that women inside the AKP have reacted very negatively to this proposed alliance um, because, of course, Hudapar has a a, a very anti-feminist uh, approach and wants to repeal various rights for women uh, that are currently enshrined in the law. At the same time, it's, of course, very much in step with the AKP's current LG, anti-LGBT stance. Um, all of that is quite worrying when you consider that maybe these people will enter the parliament and have some influence. Um, what do you have to say about that? Yes, it is indeed very worrying. I mean, now that Hudapar is a legal organization and usually they rely on non-violent legal means, it doesn't mean that they are progressive. So when we look at their policies, obviously we see like this uh, very strict uh, misogynist, almost or clearly misogynist, anti-feminist stance. They want to create a very monolithic society, and I don't think that they have a clear understanding of diversity and agency of people. So, and this is of course worrying for women, for youth, and for many other in the country who wants to live in dignity and peace. Uh, it doesn't mean that them having two, three members in the parliament will empower them to implement all these policies altogether, but definitely it will just create a discursive space in which these people can um, disseminate their ideas. And uh, obviously, like when we look at the evolution of the conflict and violence, discourse proceeds and violence comes later, right? Well, yes, and we, of course, have those horrible memories of what they did to Gonja Kurish, uh, the Islamist feminist, how they murdered her so brutally uh, and tried to set an example through her. Well, Mashuk, thank you so very much for this very, very enlightening conversation. We hope to have you again on our program after the elections to, you know, evaluate um, the the outcome and um, yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hopefully we'll speak in a better environment following the elections in the new, new Turkey. And this brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. 
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mashuk. Thank you and goodbye.